Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Kings 17. And uh, as always, we have people coming down the aisles to get you a Bible. If you don't have one, we're going to be in 1 Kings 17. And I need to say, um, already this weekend, I'm seeing a bunch of women all wearing matching sweatshirts. Have you guys noticed that? How was the women's conference on Friday? Did you guys enjoy that? Um, I heard Mary came home and kept me up to like 11 o'clock at night telling me all about it. I heard it was an incredibly impactful um, event. Thank you uh, to Jen Wilkin and our women's ministry team for making that happen. And dads, hey, way to hold it down and keep everyone alive for a couple hours, all right? You guys get some credit too, but I'm glad that that uh, night was so great and and have been hearing great things about that. So um, just to bring you up to speed, we are in the second week of our study of Elijah. And if you remember, last week we were only in one verse. You've got a guy named Elijah. He goes into the palace of Ahab and Jezebel, who have dedicated their life to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal, who was the god of rain. And he rolls in and he says, hey, by the way, it ain't raining until I say it is. And he is setting up this fight between Baal, the God of rain, and Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so it's very combative. He shows up out of nowhere. And we only covered this one verse. Well, today we're going to cover the rest of chapter 17. So buckle up. We've got a lot to get after. And here's what I want to say to start this message. I just want to remind all of you that I really love you. And I love being a pastor here. And this is one of the weekends where I need to love you by being willing to say difficult things. And there's definitely going to be some moments of discomfort in this message. This might be one of those how to shrink your church in a weekend type of sermons. And that's okay. I love you guys. Want to be faithful, excited for what God's word has for us this morning. So let's get after it. Here's the big question. Here's what we're getting after. It's this. Does God actually have your heart? Can you answer that in a way that's honest? If you were to cut through the routine, if you were to cut through the activities, if you were to cut through the busyness and the small group and the church attendance and the serving and all of the stuff that we do, does God have you? Are you a person of genuine faith? This is a question every one of us needs to ask. Here's why. Hebrews 11 is very, very clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, we have nothing. Listen, there is no salvation without faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You don't even enter into the Christian life without faith. And what 1 Kings 17 is all about is how does God build genuine faith in his people? And what does this genuine faith look like? So let's look at verse 2, 1 Kings 17. Here's what it says. It says, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook as I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and drank from the brook. All right, so Elijah walks into the palace. He declares this fight. And then God says, hey, here's what you're going to do now. You're going to go hide out in the wilderness and you're going to live there for a while. Most commentators believe that this was a few years. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to get meat and bread miraculously brought to you in the morning. And then you're just going to chill out by this brook that feeds you. And here's what we're seeing, that when God wants to build genuine faith in you, the first thing he does is he takes you to school. God is taking Elijah to school. He is saying, don't do anything. 
Don't move into further ministry. You need to go. You need to hide yourself away. You need to get away. And God's going to take him to school to teach him three massively important lessons. Here's the first. God is taking Elijah to the school of patience. Right? Like, think about it. If I was Elijah's campaign strategist, the move is not to go hide right now. He has just walked into the palace. He has said, it is not going to rain until I say so. And guess what? It's not raining. He's winning. This is the time to go public. He should be doing a book tour. He should be going town to town, village to village, pronouncing, hey, listen, I have just trumped the God of Baal. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel, they have no power against my word. I said it wasn't going to rain. It's not raining anymore. Put pressure on your king and queen to repent and turn to the Lord. This is his moment. But God doesn't do that. He says, go to the wilderness and just chill by this brook and you're going to lay low. Like, this is hard for me to understand. Like, I'm the type of person that five days into vacation, I'm already stir crazy again. Anyone else like that? It's like the break's been great. I love my kids, but they're driving me crazy. I want to get back at it. And this is going to sound so cliche, but it's true. Don't let the cliche-ness take away from the meaning. The Christian life is lived step by step, day by day. It's a game of patience waiting on the Lord. Look here. God is not in a rush to get to the finish line with you. He is not in a hurry with you. Like, can we have a moment of honesty in church? How many of us have the tendency to be like, man, I wish in life I was five steps further along than I actually am. Like, raise your hand if that's you. Maybe that's financially. Maybe that's in my career. Maybe that's in my walk with the Lord. It's like, man, I, I, I don't love where I'm at right now. I can't wait to get to the future. Listen, that mentality is an enemy to a life of faith. And all it's going to do is rob you of joy and it's going to have you miss the work that God wants to do in this moment of waiting. Turn to your neighbor and say, stop that. I get some nervous giggling. That means it must be true for some of us. Did you know that almost every person God uses mightily in the Bible has to go through a season of waiting? And usually it's in the wilderness. Moses had to go into hiding in the desert because he was a wanted man by the Egyptians. Joseph had to wait in prison. David anointed the next king of Israel. Then he spends the next years running for his life in the wilderness, fleeing from King Saul. Paul, three years in Arabia after his conversion, being prepared for his ministry. Jesus, 30 years on earth before he begins his public ministry. And then he gets baptized. The Holy Spirit falls on him. And then where does he go? He goes to the... Wilderness for 30 days to fast and pray to be prepared for what is to come. Listen to me. Genuine faith is marked by a patience that says, God, I trust you and I know you're working and I am not where I would like to be right now, but I know that you're in control and you're faithful and you're good and I don't want to miss the lessons you're teaching me by having me where I am right now. It's the school of patience. Write Psalm 41, one of my favorite passages. David says this. He says, I waited patiently on the Lord and he heard my cry. Can, can I tell you something? How did God teach David to wait patiently? You know what he did? He made him wait. God is working in the waiting. Here's the next school he goes to. It's this. It's the school of prayer and stillness. Right? Like imagine the amount of time Elijah would have had to sit, reflect, pray, and just be with the Lord during this time. Like here was the schedule. He would wake up, food would be brought to him, and then at night food would be brought again, and the rest of the day he didn't have a job, he didn't have a task, he was just sitting with the Lord. All right, God, what do you want to show me today? 
What do I need to learn? What do you need to teach me? How are you going to show yourself faithful? I'm trusting in you that you're going to provide for my needs. He is just sitting here being still. He has no choice. You see, our problem as Americans in 2023, we have bought into this lie that our life is a journey and that we need to be constantly moving from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And that's what growth and that's what progress is. But here's the thing. Did you know that a massive part of genuine faith is a willingness to stop and to be still before the Lord and just to be with him? Right, Psalm 23, David says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Listen to this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I love this idea that like God makes David just stop, stop moving. Stop walking. Stop going to the next thing. Lie down. What I have for you is good, and I'm with you. I need you to be still. Be still and know that I am God. Uh, This past Monday, uh, for those of you who don't know, Monday is like my off day, and it's like my date morning with Mary usually. And so um, Mary woke up. She took the kids to school. I got to sleep in. Uh, a little bit, and I woke up, and I was waiting for Mary to get home, and I had all of these plans for what our morning would look like, and she got home, and I was all excited. I'm like, hey, do you want to go out and and walk the boardwalk in Grand Haven? It's beautiful. We can get some coffee, and then we can go for breakfast. Like, let's have a really sweet date morning, and Mary looked at me, and she goes, I am exhausted, and I'm going back to bed. You can do whatever you want to do, right? (laughs) I'm like, great. You can't win them all. So Mary goes back to bed. I let her sleep for a couple of hours, and um, I just have a quiet morning in the house by myself, and I have started to do a, a read through the New Testament in a year plan with one of the younger guys in our church. So I got my Bible open, turned it to Luke, had my journal out, and I just spent an hour of just reading Scripture and praying, and here's what I would say. The Lord showed up and met me in a powerful way. And it set my heart and my day on a trajectory that was, God, how can I worship you and how can I follow you and how can I love you and how can I love my family like you would call me to in a way that wouldn't have happened if I didn't take time to prioritize and get my heart still before the Lord. Listen, I have talked with five different people this week in our church. Here's what they say. They say, when we commit ourselves to doing the hard work of being still before the Lord, you can't help but grow. When you pray, When you open God's word, when you prioritize that in your life, it is the fastest way to grow in your faith. One of the most overlooked aspects in the life of Jesus Christ was he did the hard work to be still before God. He would have demands, crowds would want to be healed, his disciples would need him, and he would get away by himself to get alone before the Lord and pray. Church, look at me. The reason so many of us are not growing in our faith like we could is because we refuse to do the hard work of getting still before the Lord. It takes discipline. It takes time. It takes planning. But here's what it takes more than anything else. It takes a heart that acknowledges its dependence on God. Do you know what we're communicating to God when we say, God, I don't have time to be in your word and I don't have time to pray? We're saying, hey, God, thanks for everything, but I've got this. Hey, God, I can handle it. Hey, I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. I've got this figured out. I'll call you if I need you. But practically, I'm going to live without your strength and without your power. God is taking Elijah to teach him that stillness before the Lord is so important. Can I ask you a question? Have you learned that lesson? Have you gone to school? Then here's the third. I think this is the most important. He's taking Elijah to the school of character and consistency. 
right? This is the most important thing God is doing in Elijah in this time, right? For a few years, Elijah is alone and he's trusting God and he's watching God provide for him and he's seeing God be faithful to keep his promises. He's living a life rooted in faith in private before anyone else sees anything that Elijah does. Listen to me. The Lord wants to have you way more than he needs to use you. God is way more concerned about having your heart than he is what you can do. Listen, Elijah's life is about to get very public. He's about to do very big things for the Lord. But before any of that happens, God is intentionally cultivating in him a life of faith, character, and consistency in his personal life when no one is watching. All right, throw up the next slide. You need to hear this. Your life and faith is determined by who you are in private. It's that simple. I don't care about how talented you are. I don't care about how long you've gone to church. I don't care about how likable you are. I don't care how many people would say, man, that guy's a great dude. I don't care how much you know about scripture and how much you can play the game. Your life is defined by who you are in private. Is what you say you believe and who you say you are, does that match with how you live when no one's around? Do you know that when Paul would establish churches and plant them in the New Testament, he had one qualification for all of his leaders, both men and women. You know what it was? You had to be above reproach. And then he had this list of what above reproach living looks like. But you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you have to be who you say you are. If you say you believe these things and you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you want to serve him, your life needs to match up. I've heard it say this way. Integrity is simply being who you are wherever you are. I need to be honest with you. The number one goal for my life in ministry has very little to do with how many people are church baptized. It doesn't matter with how many people show up on a weekend. How most people judge ministry success is not what I'm focused on. You know what I want more than anything? I want primarily my family, my wife and kids But then secondarily, my staff that I work with, my close friends, my small group, my elders, the people that know me best, I want them to be able to say that the same cow that's on stage talking on the weekend services is the same cow that I know every single day that I'm with him. I want to be a person of consistency and character and faith before the Lord. So guess what that means about my life? I don't live with unaccounted for time. My wife knows my schedule. She knows where I'm at. And if things change, I let her know. I don't have passwords on any devices that people don't know. I have people in my life, hey, here's my internet history. Look at it. It's all yours to see. I don't have secret social media accounts. I am doing the hard work to say what I say I believe in who I am. It has to match up. And now we need to have a family chat. And I need you to hear this. For sure, in our church in this season, we are seeing a big uptick in people living with duplicity. Who they say they are, what they say they believe, what they claim, and who they are in private are not matching up. And God is exposing hidden affairs. He's exposing hidden online accounts and activities that the only way I can describe it are things that God hates, secret addictions, all sorts of, there's an uptick happening in our church right now. And I know for sure, look at me, in a room this size with this many people, there are for sure people who are hiding things in this room right now. Absolutely 100%. 
And if that's you, please hear me. I say this not because I'm angry with you, but because I love you. Don't believe for a second you're going to get away with it. God makes very specific promises. Your sin will find you out. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Okay, and here's the other thing I would say. Don't kid yourself and believe that you're a person of genuine faith because you lack the character and consistency with what you say you believe. And listen, here's the other thing I will say. Our leaders at this church are committed to have this not be a safe place for unrepentant hidden sin to hang out at because the Lord is in this place and we are going to elevate the name of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has a way of exposing us. So if you're here and there's something going on, like I'm just pleading with you right now, come clean and repent. You are here right now because God is reaching out to you saying it needs to stop. But I can't love you and serve you as your pastor and not address this with what me and our pastors are dealing with in the background. It's a thing. The way God builds genuine faith is he's going to take you to school. Can I ask you a question? Have you been to school? Are you learning the lessons of patience? Are you learning the lessons of stillness? Are you learning the lessons of character and consistency? Here's the next thing God's going to do when he builds genuine faith. He's going to turn up the temperature. He's going to turn up the temperature. Look at verse 7. It says, and after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath and he came to the gate of the city and behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. All right, so here's how God's turning up the temperature. A couple things are happening. First, the brook that's keeping Elijah alive is slowly drying out. So there's this thing happened where week after week, day after day, month after month, Elijah's watching his life source slowly run out. Do you think there were moments where he was like, hey, God, um, we got to change plans here. The, the, the water's not exactly flowing anymore, and, and I'm getting nervous, and are you still going to be faithful? Are you still going to protect me? Hey, the, the bank account's running thin. The relationship's not getting any better. Life is slowly starting to boil on me. It's getting more difficult to follow you, not easier, right? It, it, it's getting hard. And then the next thing he does, and this is even crazier, is he calls Elijah to go to Sidon. Now, who was paying attention last week? Does anyone remember who's from Sidon? Say it if you remember. It's Jezebel, right? Her daughter or her dad was the king of Sidon, Ethbaal. So God is saying, hey, Elijah, now I'm going to move you into enemy territory. You're going to go straight into the heart of Baal country. And by the way, the people of Sidon are already enemies with Israel. They hate God. They hate the Israelites. And they really hate Elijah because he's getting blamed for this drought. And he's like, I'm going to bring you straight into the heart of conflict. He's turning up the temperature on Elijah. So what do we do when God turns up the temperature on us? That's the question. Here's what we need to do. The first thing is, is we need to live with biblical expectations. We need to live with biblical expectations. Or here's maybe a better way to say it. Robbie Simon's a pastor in Canada. He says it this way. He says, set your expectations by what the Bible actually teaches. All right, church, here's our problem. It's so easy for us to buy in into a theology or to have expectations that are more rooted in fairy tales and pixie dust than they are what the Bible actually teaches. Did you know that? Here's why. Because we want to believe that God's will for our life and our life getting easier and more comfortable are the same thing. 
That if I love God and if God is good and if he is for me, then my life is going to get more comfortable. The problem is the Bible never teaches that. Did you know that? It never does. And by the way, this is why people bail so quickly. Like I've seen this happen dozens of times where a person jumps into small group and it's like, man, I love this small group and I, I know I need this. I know what the Lord has for me. I'm so excited about the year and they're doing great for two weeks. And then someone has the audacity to speak into their life. And they're like, oh man, now I'm not comfortable. And I didn't like that. And there was some conflict and now I'm disappointed and I'm angry. And I don't know about this whole church thing. This is way harder than what I thought it was going to be. Right? People are so excited about the things of the Lord until the first moment of hurt or disappointment or heartache, and then they're like, I'm out. And it's because they have a pixie dust theology, not a biblical one. Church, hear me. God promises us that when we follow him, there will be seasons of conflict. There will be seasons of pain. There will be heartbreak. There will be tears. There will be sorrow. But look at me. He also promises it's going to be amazing. Because he is going to be with us and he's going to show up and he's going to empower our lives. He is not going to leave us or forsake us. And he is going to use these pain points to transform our lives and to transform our heart, to grow our faith that we might become more and more dependent on and like our Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? James, he says it this way. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see James's perspective on trials and hard times? He's like, lean into them. Be pumped about them. Have joy in them because God is using that to perfect and grow our faith. When the temperature is turned up, are we going to give up or be transformed? We have to make a choice. Then here's the other thing we have to remember when the temperature gets turned up, that God already has your destination figured out. He already knows your destination. Look at verse nine, I love this. He says, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Do you see what God's telling Elijah? He's like, listen, I'm calling you to go somewhere really scary, but I've already got your destination figured out. I've got the solution. I've already got this plan in my mind for you. The same is true with us. When God turns up the temperature on our faith, the destination is already figured out. And by the way, it's always for our good. Did you know that the Bible promises this? Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love the Lord or love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Listen, there are some in this room right now who are facing impossible circumstances. I sat with a woman in our church this week in impossible circumstances. And through tears, all I said was, I have no answer for you. I'm sorry. God is with you and he loves you and he cares for you. And he already has your destination in mind and it is for your good. The problem is, is we don't get the joy to always see what the destination is beforehand. Sometimes we just got to go and we got to trust and we got to be faithful and we got to know that God will be faithful, right? And listen, even if what God is calling you to ends in death, right? Like some of you are thinking, man, I've got diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer. or That's a loved one in my life. How does that lead anywhere good? How is God's destination good for me? Listen, even if he is calling you to death, your destination is still promised, protected, and assured, Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, for I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are sealed in Christ, and whatever God is calling us to, we are not going to look back and question God's goodness in it. If we knew everything God knows, we would be praying for everything God has called us to walk through. Look at verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, there was a widow gathering sticks. Look, God kept his promise. Shocking. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in the vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now that I am gathering a couple sticks so that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterwards make something for yourself and your son. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and, he, and she and he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah." So God does an amazing miracle here. He, he prolongs this very meager amount of food for many, many days and weeks. And we don't have a ton of time to jump into this miracle, but here's what I want to show you. This is actually a beautiful picture of what saving grace and saving faith looks like. Like, think about this. This is a picture of how salvation works. You have a woman at the end of herself. Look at verse 11. Elijah says, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she says, as the Lord your God lives. You see the Lord your God? She's not a follower of Yahweh. She's not on Elijah's side. She is a pagan woman living in a pagan, pagan village just trying to fend for herself. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. All right, she is in an awful place. She has no backup plan. There's nothing in the savings account. She is a widow in a drought. And by the way, widows in, a, in normal times were already dependent on other people to care for them. And when a drought happens, no one has anything. And the widows are the first to go hungry. She is nothing. She's like, I've got a little left. I'm going to eat it. We are starving. We're about to die. We are days away from death. She's at the end of herself. There is no hope left. There is no second option. And look at me, church. By the way, Jesus will never be beautiful to you until you come to the end of yourself. If you still think that your goodness and your righteousness and your character and your plans are enough to save you, Jesus never becomes beautiful. Listen, all of us have to come to a point at saving grace where it's like, Jesus, you're my only hope. That I have sinned and I have fallen short of the glory of God and I am making a mess out of my life and my selfishness and my desire to worship myself is the biggest problem in my life. Jesus, I need you. Right? This woman was at the end of herself. No other options. And then guess what God does? He says, even though you don't trust me and even though you're my enemy, I'm going to offer you life miraculously. Right? Didn't he do the same to us? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, I'm going to provide a way for you, my enemy, when there is no way. And then what he calls the woman to do is to make a step of faith. Right? Can I ask you a question? If you were the woman in this circumstance, would you have given your last food to Elijah? Right? This is a stranger, an Israelite who you don't know. Would you have been like, hey, I'm going to trust the word of his Lord and I'm going to act by faith? Or would you have been like, who's this loser trying to scam me out of my last meal? 
It was a huge step of faith. Would you have taken it? How would you have responded? Can I ask you a question? With what God has given you today, are you living out a life of faith and trust in him? It's a beautiful picture of saving grace. Look at verse 17. Things turn here. It says, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God, that you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? All right, so this this is crazy. So after God miraculously spares this family and they eat for weeks, miraculously, God just providing food for them, it says that their son gets sick with an unrelated illness. And he gets so sick that there's no breath left in him. You know what that means, church? That means he's dead. He dies. And this brings up the question, how do we respond when things go south? Now listen, I want to be as gracious as I possibly can to this woman. I have no idea the pain she's going through right now as she is laying her son who has just passed away down on the ground. But do you see how she responds? She responds with anger and accusation. Right? She goes after Elijah. She forgets that they would both already be dead if it weren't for Elijah showing up. And she's like, why did you come here? What do you have against me? Are you bringing my sin before me? You see how she falls back into work salvation? She thinks God is cursing her because she's not good enough, but she's blaming Elijah. She, she's saying, if you wouldn't have showed up, if you wouldn't have been here, me and my son would have been fine. It's crazy. They wouldn't have. They would have already been dead. But church, here's something that I need you to see. You need to understand this. When people are angry with God, most of the time that anger is translated not just to God, but to the people of God. Did you know that? I was having a conversation with one of our elders uh, this past week, and he was telling me the story of a guy in our church who just was driving through Grand Haven, and all of a sudden he found himself in a road rage incident. Uh, A truck behind him pulls up and is tailgating him and he's honking the horn and he's flipping him off and he's screaming obscenities and he spins around and cuts him off really dramatically and it's like, whoa, what's going on? And then that super awkward thing happens where he cuts him up just to realize they're both going to the same parking lot. So then they pull in together and the guy gets out of his truck, goes to the car of the guy in our church and just starts yelling at him. And you know what became very, very apparent? He wasn't angry at the guy in our church's driving. He was really angry about the harvest bumper sticker on his car. And you church people this and harvest that and God that, you think you're better and who do you think you are? And just going off on a profanity laced tirade because the guy had a bumper sticker of a church on his car. Now listen, that guy didn't do anything to this man. But if I had to guess, something happened in this man's life and he is disappointed or he's angry with the Lord and that is being transferred onto the people of God. Um, I need to take a moment and ask for your help, church. I need you to pay for my pa- or pray for our pastors. I need you to pray for our pastors. Here's why. Because I have a staff of people who love the Lord genuinely, and they really love you, and they love this church, and they've given their lives to serve you. And by the way, I need you to know this. Do you know no one goes into ministry to have people angry with them? Right? No one goes into ministry to be a jerk and to have people not like you. Maybe my dad. He might be the only one, but I can't (laughs) speak for him. Everyone else, it's like, man, good intentions. I want to see God move, and I want to see people grow, and I want to see people have victory. But do you know that not a week goes by where we're not having really difficult conversations? Do you know that it takes courage to say, hey, what you're doing dishonors the Lord? 
And you don't get to leave your family just because you feel like it. And what you're doing, God hates. And you need to turn around and you need to get right with the Lord and you need to repent and you're making a mess of your life. And what you're doing is wrong. Every week, we have conversations like this. And guess what happens most of the time? The people aren't just mad at God. They're mad at the pastor who tells them that. And so I just would ask right now, pray for grace and pray for boldness and pray for courage because your pastors are on the front line trying to protect this church from wolves, to protect the purity of this ministry and to be a light and stand for Christ in a dark culture. And it does not come without a cost. Do you see that? She's not just angry with God. She's angry with the voice of God who is Elijah. It's a weird thing to walk around town not knowing who you're going to see and who's just going to hate you. And our, our pastors have to live with that. Okay, look how Elijah responds in verse 19. Elijah's response is different. It says, And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took her from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber in the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Okay, church. One of the things you have to remember is that Bible in your hands, it's all one story, and the star of this story is Jesus Christ. And there is some hugely Christological significance in pictures of Jesus in these verses. So Elijah takes the son who's dead, brings him upstairs, lays him on his bed, and then it says he lays out on him three separate times and cries out to the Lord. And it's interesting that the greatest prophet in Israel, when a child dies, this is the first story of resurrection in the entire Bible, and in order for the child to live, he lays on him three times. You know what that represents? That Jesus, our Savior, the greatest prophet, that he would be dead for three days, three periods of time, and that he would rise again. It's a picture of Jesus, even in how this miracle is taking place. But here's what's even more significant. Did you know that under Old Testament law, you weren't allowed to touch things that were dead, especially human bodies? And if you touched and handled dead humans, it made you unclean, which was a picture of sin, and you'd have to go through a process of purification. So when Elijah does this, he is crying out to the Lord, and he is laying on this dead child. He is making himself unclean. It's like he is representing putting sin on himself as he pleads with the Lord to save this child. And this is a beautiful picture of what the great prophet would do, Jesus Christ, when he would come and he would become unclean on our behalf, that he would take our sin, that he would suffer God's wrath in our place, right? Second Corinthians 5 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Elijah's showing us, hey, the greatest prophet in Israel, I'm becoming unclean so this boy may live because Jesus Christ, the greatest king of the world, Lord of the universe would become unclean, take our sin in our place. Thousands of years before Jesus would be on earth, this happens. Isn't that beautiful? It's all about Jesus but here's what I want you to see. Let's see what Elijah shows us is what authentic faith looks like. Hey, God, I don't know what's happening. I'm confused right now. 
this doesn't make sense. Why would you send me to this village to save this child just to have him die with an illness later? But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run to you. I'm not going to talk about you. I'm not going to get angry with you. I am going to go and I'm going to plead with you that you would fix this and solve this crisis. And guess what God does? He answers the prayer of his people. So I need to ask you this question again. We have seen a chapter full of what genuine faith looks like, how it's built and how it plays out. Does God have your heart? Does he really have it? Or are you busy with things and and, and have you missed the whole going to school part, right? Like, do you want your degree before you finish class? Are you willing to wait patiently on the Lord? Are you willing to say, God, right now, in this moment, in the frustrations of my life, I know you're working and I trust you and I'm going to have joy because I believe in you more than I do my circumstances. Do you have a life that's marked by doing the hard work of setting your life around God's word and prayer? Are you living a life of character, of consistency? Are you doing these things? How do you respond when the temperature is turned up? Do you live with biblical expectations? What do you do when you do not understand what's going on? This is what is going to define our lives. And I'm so thankful for this passage and what we can learn. Amen? Let's pray. Generally, Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for... um, a really difficult chapter in God. We have to hear difficult things sometimes and thank you for your goodness and patience with us. God, may we be a people who are marked by patience and stillness and character. We love you. Thank you for the testimony of your goodness and faithfulness to a woman who was your enemy. Because God, all of us in our sin have made ourselves enemies of you and you've saved us and you've redeemed us and you've adopted us into your family and we are so grateful. May we learn these lessons. May we be people of genuine faith. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.